It's very good to have you back too. Today's reading is uh, John 9, uh, 1 to 34, which is on page 1075. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither. This man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said this, he spat on the ground, made some mud with with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he said wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened? They demanded. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, He is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? they asked. Is this the one that you say was born blind? How is it now that he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said because his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue That was why his parents said he is of age ask him A second time they summoned the man who had been blind Give glory to God they said we know this man is a sinner He replied whether he is a sinner or not I don't know One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are the disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. 
The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You are steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, James, so much. Do keep that passage open. Um, And I'm going to pray for help that we would see what lies within. Let's pray. Jesus Christ, if you are the light of the world, we pray that you'd shed light on this passage by your Spirit. We pray that we would see you that none of us here would leave without having been unblinded to who you are. And would we display that in a desire to worship you, as this man does, for your name's sake. Amen. As I begin, please would you do me a favor. It's not the kind of thing we normally do in church, but please would you shut your eyes. Tight shut, no peeking. Now just focus on what's around you. Maybe breathe in deeply. What can you smell? Bit of the coffee? Person next to you, don't say about that. Listen carefully. What can you hear in this room? Outside? Maybe use your hands to feel a bit, feel the texture of your clothes, the roughness, the smoothness. Now, keeping your eyes shut, imagine that these senses were all you had and all you'd ever had. Keeping your eyes shut, think about your journey home. Think about the steps you will take, the bus you will catch, the curbs you will stop at. The stairs you'll ascend, the key you'll have to find, the keyhole you'll have to put it into to go home. And think about doing all of that, only being able to smell, hear, and touch. How does that make you feel? Okay, open your eyes. Welcome back. Chapter 9, verse 1. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind blind from birth. So here is a gentleman who had a nose which smelt, a tongue which tasted, skin which touched, ears which heard. He had eyes, but not eyes which saw. And therefore he was severely disabled. I'm told that he couldn't apprehend or make sense of 80% of the world around him without sight. He'd never seen anything. Not a mountain, not a mouse, not his sister, not a sycamore tree, not himself, not the Himalayas. Hadn't seen anything. He would have had no concept of color. You say the word red to him or brown or burnt umber. 
He would not have registered at all, no idea what they refer to. He would not have dreamed in pictures because he had never seen anything. He lived in the dark. He needed the light. He needed Jesus. And his disciples assumed that his condition was self-imposed. Did you notice that? Through some sin or another. It's their question in verse 2, quite harsh. And it's not our main focus today, but Jesus' answer is important. Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned to cause the blindness. Important to say that in the Bible there is no direct link between sin and suffering in the sense in which I, if I blaspheme, I don't suddenly get a cold. There's a general link between sin and suffering. The world is broken because of humanity's sin. But I do not suffer in direct proportion to the degree to which I sin. That's important. That's quite rare amongst world religions. It was not as a result of sin. But verse 3, it was an opportunity for Jesus, if you look down, to do a work of God, the work of God in this man's life. As ever, Jesus uses what is evil for good. And in a very matter-of-fact way, we're told that Jesus did what no other Moorfields eye physician could ever do. Uh, End of verse 7, the man came home seeing. It was his first journey home where he was able to use his retina and his optical nerve and his rods and his cones and his eyes. It was the first time he'd seen that curb at which he'd always stopped for the passing traffic, the first time he'd seen those shops that he'd always passed. He knew the smell, he knew the sound, he didn't know the sight. And as we saw last week, Jesus works this sign, this optician sign this week, not, um, not for this man himself primarily, interestingly, but actually for the world. That's us. So that we might see who he is He says, I am the light of the world, verse 5. And this miraculous sign he works performs two functions simultaneously at the beginning of the passage. The first is this. Have you played dominoes before? Maybe Christmas time when you ran out of games on the console. (laughs) But but the first purpose this, this, this sign performs is like the first domino being pushed over. It's a trigger for the whole of the rest of chapter 9 to take place. This hilarious and profound conversation. Domino, bang, knock it over, it starts. The second function is of a metaphor. So as he heals this blind man, what what happens to him physically, can't see, can see, is a metaphor for what Jesus promises to do to any of us spiritually. Can't see spiritually, can see spiritually. It's a metaphor. I've got three uh, little headings. The first one is honest sight. Honest sight. So let me ask you a question. At which point in the passage, if this was some kind of impromptu St. Michael's evening service exam, at which point in the passage would you say this man sees? Which verse would you pick out? Jack Brooks is in there. He's looking. Which verse would you pick? Verse 7? You could make a case for that. After all, that is when we're told he can see again. But what about his spiritual sight? By the time verse 7 comes around, he is still pretty blind spiritually, isn't he? Have a look at verse 11. In verse 11, he hardly knows 
anything to do with Jesus. He calls him the man they call Jesus. Verse 12, he doesn't even know where he is. He doesn't score very highly in the theology exam. At this stage, he is still blind to Jesus. All he knows is what Jesus has done for him. The man they call Jesus made some mud and saliva. It's all a bit gross and but I can now see, and that's what I know about him. I don't know where he is. I just know his name, and even that's from some other people, the man they call Jesus. And there may be some here this evening for whom it's a similar situation. You enjoy coming to church, evening service. You enjoy the music. Maybe you say amen at the end of the prayers. You enjoy the sermons. I don't want to flatter myself or the rest of the clergy, but they find them intriguing. But if you were asked what John 9 is all about, for example, before the sermon, you wouldn't have a clue. Uh, You have a Bible, at least maybe now I say that. Do I have a Bible? I'm not quite sure. I certainly haven't read it. Um, Maybe you call yourself a Christian, but the more you think about it, it's just because your parents called themselves Christians. It's just an inherited thing. You're not a theologian. You wouldn't pretend to be. But for you... All you know is that Jesus has done some great stuff for you. I don't know what it is. Church for you is the place where you feel at home for some reason. Or you feel you've had some prayer answered. Or you feel an unburdening of some guilt or some kind of thing. When you're here, you love talk of Jesus' forgiveness. I don't know what it is. You don't really know much about Jesus. All you know is that he's begun to do some amazing things for you. And I want to say, if that's you, great. As with this man, you will get to know Jesus better in good time. And it takes a while. That's fine. It's a slow process. But do you know that moment when, I don't know, maybe you you started coming to St. Michael's maybe a month ago, maybe half a year ago, maybe a year ago, and it's a relatively new thing. You're not known in the office as as a Christian. And someone in the office gets wind of the fact you went to church yesterday, you know, in the conversation on Monday disaster you've been found out and there's that conversation and they say why you know what's the deal with that or, or they find out you're going to a wine tasting and that's all kind of fine until it's in a church <laughs> why what do you say in answer to that question can I commend to you the approach of this formerly blind man he doesn't pretend to be a theologian he doesn't go for the Nobel preaching prize all he does is he says well I've found that For him, I found I couldn't see, and now I can see, and that's pretty great. I don't know about Jesus, but he did this amazing thing. Can I commend that to you? I don't know what your particular story is. Maybe he's done some amazing thing in your life, and you may want to just share that. I have found that. It's a good beginning of a sentence. Michael Green was commending that to us on Tuesday. How about that? But notice, this man applies his mind to the Jesus identity puzzle as the passage goes on, and he begins to work some things out. End of verse 17, he moves beyond his confusion a bit. He says, now I think he's a prophet. That's his first kind of stab at the theology question. He kind of writes that down in pencil. I think, you know, and it's quite a good start. You know, he he must have come from God because he's doing some amazing things and prophets come from God. So maybe he's a prophet. And then I imagine him getting his eraser out, just scrubbing that out, as many of us would have done in GCSE exams. I've got a better idea. And have a look down at verses 30 to 33. He's got it gets clearer over the page the man answered now that is remarkable you don't know where he comes from yet he opened my eyes now he's thinking we know that God does not listen to sinners 
He listens to the godly man who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. Pretty amazing. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He's he's getting clearer and clearer and clearer about who this guy Jesus might possibly be. He's zeroing in on him through the use of his mind. I don't know whether you've come across it. There's this crazy idea washing around that Christianity is simplistic and doesn't reward study. I remember, I said it this morning, I remember vividly, I was standing by that column in church after a morning service about a year ago, and I met this gentleman. We were chatting away over coffee, a bit awkward, uh, as it often is, and um, it became apparent I'd studied theology for three years. And he could not believe I'd studied theology for three years, or anyone might study theology for three years, because is there really three years' worth of stuff to study in Christianity? He knew that other people studied other religions, But in the Bible, I mean, it's all very simple, isn't it? It's very simple. I don't know, Jesus loves us, or something like that. Three years. You know, there's this idea washing around that Christianity is just for simplistic, happy, clappy children's songs, which we kind of grow out of, or people who are into kind of crazy right-wing politics. That's not true, though, is it? You know, the Bible says we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, And that is what this gentleman begins to discover. He applies the critical faculties he's been given to the problem he finds about who is this guy, Jesus? Is he a prophet? I'm not sure. He's from God? He's working at it. And can I say, that is why at St. Michael's we work hard at our sermons, our preaching. It's why we worked hard at big questions at the Alpha course that's starting on the 23rd of March. It's why Roger is currently, we pray, working hard on his talks for the events week. Can I commend to you to come to those things? They're a great place to do a kind of mental workout. Have a look at the evidence. Who do I think Jesus really is? Or to invite our friends to do exactly that. Let me read some verses we didn't have read. Have a look down at verses 35 and on. Jesus heard that they'd thrown this blind man out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? I love this. Well, who is he, sir? Tell me so that I might believe in him. Jesus said, You've now seen him. And I can imagine the blind man thinking, okay, so who is he? Well, in fact, he's the one speaking with you. Oh, right. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Can I say, therefore, that intellectual study about the Lord Jesus Christ will only get us so far? We'll hit the buffers sooner or later. Uh, historical research, philosophical, ethical debate will all corroborate who Jesus is. They will. But he has to ultimately reveal himself to us. He has to do that. He has to do the final running so that we are unblinded to him. Have you ever done one of those optician's tests where you're handed this? It looks innocuous, but it's really a very severe test indeed. And it's just normally, I think, green dots on the page. You know the thing? And they just say do you see anything? And you have a sense it's a trap. (laughs) And and you kind of squint at it and you look at it from different angles and you're not quite sure what you should be seeing. And a few of us can see, and it's normally a number, I think, middle of the page, I seem to remember it's often the number 68. That's a tip to you if you want to fool them. And and it's it's a number in the middle of the page and it's in slightly different colors, often red, I think. And it didn't first appear. The point is that not everyone can see the number. Why? It's not that the number isn't there. It is there for everyone. The evidence is there. It's in red. It says 68. That's a fact. 
Why can't everyone see it? It's called color blindness, right? Problems not with the evidence, problems with the eyes. And so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see it in big questions, you see it in church on a Sunday, whenever the scriptures are open and Jesus is held out. And, and, and you find a whole crowd of people just looking at Jesus, looking at that page, as it were, kind of squinting, different angles. And some people get him. Yeah, yeah, he's great. Yeah, I believe in him. I want to worship him. I am worshiping him. And other people don't get him at all. He leaves them cold. And I want to say, is that a problem with the evidence? No. No, there he is. He is God. He's given us 66 books worth of evidence right here. It's a problem not with our eyes, but with our hearts. It's not color blindness. It's Jesus blindness. And that is why we need to pray when we read the Bible. We cannot see him just with the use of our intellectual capacities. So can I say it is a miracle that any of us can see Jesus clearly? That is a miracle. It's a work of God in our lives. If we've been a Christian for a while, we can get quite blasé about the whole Jesus thing. I could ask you, who do you think Jesus is? And you will give me all the set answers and you'll get the full marks and it's all very boring. We do not realize that seeing who Jesus is and responding to him rightly is a miracle, which many people in London don't share. I spent a bit of time on YouTube this last week looking up videos of people who had kind of minor sight defects having operations and then the video is typically of, of when the, the patch was taken off their eyes. You know the kind of thing. It's, it's quite emotional. People always cry in those videos. Here was a quote uh, from one lady. It was the first time she'd been able to see out of her right eye, I think, clearly. She'd have a stigmatism removed. She said, honest to God, it felt like Christmas Day. And I watched her hug her family. She could see her husband clearly for the first time. It was quite moving if you're into that kind of thing. And I want to say that is nothing. That is nothing compared to the spiritual miracle it is when somebody is unblinded and they can see the Lord Jesus for the first time. Honest to God is better than Christmas Day. It's new life. Many of us may have forgotten that. Honest sight, stubborn blindness. Stubborn blindness, second heading. Let me read out verse 39. Again, we didn't have it read earlier. Jesus said, for judgment I've come into this world. Okay, really? That's a bit of a surprise. So that the blind will see. Good, that's more positive. And those who see will become blind. Oh, I'm not quite sure about that last bit. And that's exactly what we're going to see happen here. Those who see will become blind. Uh, This is the Pharisees and I think a wider group around them. They're sort of characterized variously as the Jews in John's Gospel. And they go through, I want to suggest, four stages of stubborn blindness. And each stage takes them deeper and deeper into blindness. See whether you agree with me. Step one, they discount the evidence. This is verses eight to nine. Uh, The formerly blind man's neighbors and those who'd formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, don't you love this bit? But he himself insisted, I am the man. It is amazing what people have to believe in order not to come to the conclusion that Jesus is God. I have routinely seen people go through intellectual gymnastics 
to come to a conclusion other than the fact that he was raised really physically, historically from the dead, from the dead for, for example. The evidence is so overwhelming for that. Or speaking with someone who's into their ethics and philosophy, they have to do intellectual gymnastics to try and work out a, a better foundation for human rights, for example, than Christianity. And so it is here. They are willing to believe something patently stupid in order to avoid the conclusion that Jesus is God. Do you see, they, they prefer to come to the conclusion they found a complete look-alike to this blind man. They've never met him before, but he's suddenly rocked up, coinciding with this guy talking about the fact he's been healed. They prefer to believe he's, he's been on some kind of look-alike show than to listen to this guy who's jumping up and down in the background saying, it was me, it is me, it is me, hi. And they're saying, no. They discount the evidence, first step. Second step, conclude before hearing the evidence. Verse 24, speaking to the formerly blind man, they say, give glory to God. We know, we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. We know it. This is their a priori assumption that Jesus cannot be anyone special. He's just a normal guy. It's what they've concluded. Some of us are scientists here. I'm not a scientist, right? It is a very bad way to do science to say, Okay, I haven't done any experiments yet, but this is what uh, I'm going to conclude. We write the conclusion of the thesis, and then we go into the lab and we, we tell the test tubes, you've got to tell me what, this, what I've already concluded, please. That's bad science, right? It's bad history. It's bad thinking. It's bad intellectual inquiry. It's a case of the intellectual tail wagging the dog. It's the wrong, it's the wrong way around. And can I say it is a very rare thing for anyone to approach the claims of Jesus with a genuinely open mind. We all come with a bias. We don't want to conclude that he is God, for if he were God, that would have very big implications for us indeed. That is at the heart of our Jesus blindness. Step three, discount the witness. Verse 34, they respond to the blind man's logical argument angrily. You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us. Uh, this is what people call an ad hominem argument. Now we see this in the press and in politics all too often, right? So if, if Charlie and I are debating and he comes up with a fantastic logical argument, as you always do, Charlie, and I disagree, how am I going to sort of disprove him or escape the conclusions that he's leading me to? I just sling mud at Charlie's character. It's nothing to do with the argument, it's just to do with him as a person. I've completely sidestepped the logic of the thing. It's not good debating, but it happens a lot. That's what they do. They discount the witness. And finally, step four, they remove the witness entirely. End of verse 34, and they threw him out. This is what our freedom of speech legislation is meant to legislate against. When people don't like hearing about Jesus from, let's say, me, I guess they have two options. The first is not to listen to me, and the second is to remove themselves from my speaking. So, you know, some of us may have experienced that. Uh, suddenly we feel a bit frozen out from that friendship group where we've spoken clearly about Jesus. Why? Because people don't want to hear from the witness. They want to remove them or remove themselves. Or they don't come back to week two of big questions, not because of a diary issue, just because they don't want to hear the arguments or whatever it might be. And in some parts of the world, the removal of the witness means killing them. 
That's happening today because they don't like the message. And that is what the Pharisees do. Notice the thing which really angers Jesus in verse 41 is not even so much their blindness, but their profession of sight. You see that in verse 41? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Did you notice that? That that their spiritual blindness increases through the passage at the same rate as their certainty that they can see. And that's what makes it so terrifying. There's no blindness more blinding than spiritual blindness. I'm sure we've said this before. Not only can spiritually blind people not see, but they cannot see that they cannot see. Now, if there's anyone here who feels that what I've just described could be them, can I commend one thing? And that is to engage with the evidence in an open-minded way. Tolstoy, of all people, said this. Free thinkers are those who are willing to use their minds without prejudice and without fearing to understand things that clash with their own customs, privileges, or beliefs. He says this state of mind is not common, but it is essential for right thinking. Please come to an events week thing. Come to Alpha, 23rd of March. Uh, Come to some of those things. Uh, Pray the atheist's prayer. That's an oxymoron. That shouldn't exist, should it, as a thing? The atheist's prayer. Michael Green took us through it on Tuesday. Lord God, I know you don't exist. But if you do, please show me your truth as I read this gospel. Amen. But to the rest of us, can I say, don't let other people's unbelief undermine your faith. Now, often I find this happening to me. I think we are such a minority as Christians in London and in the UK. I think maybe I'm backing the wrong horse, if that's not an irreverent way to speak about Jesus. You know, do you ever have that? You wake up in a cold sweat, think, are we doing the wrong thing? This is absolutely crazy. I have so many intelligent friends who do not agree with the doctrinal basis of the Church of England. Maybe I'm bonkers. But you see here that what is lacking is not the evidence it's, it's a Jesus blindness. I had a good friend at school, Dan Fisher, lovely guy. I began to speak to him about Jesus, and he said something very interesting the more I spoke to him about Jesus. He said to me, John, can you stop speaking to me about Jesus? Because the more you speak to me about him, I find my thinking gets clouded. Very interesting, isn't it? See, he had got it all the wrong way around. He was saying Jesus is the darkness of the world. You know, he'd begun to cloud his thinking, he thought. But actually... It was the light coming into his darkness. I want to say, don't let other people's unbelief put you off. There is such a thing as spiritual blindness, stubborn blindness. Finally, personal light. Personal light. Can I say it's not a childish thing to be afraid of the dark? Are you afraid of the dark? I'm afraid of the dark. It is a universally human thing to be afraid of the dark. And that is why there is always a huge marketplace for lights. You see them in Ikea, a huge hall of light fittings. But more profoundly, light, capital L, truth, meaning, reality, light. Because humanity is rightly scared of unbelief or uncertainty or danger or not being able to see around corners of darkness. Are you afraid of the dark? And there were all sorts of purveyors of light, people saying, we can give you light. You know, the 18th century Enlightenment movement saying empiricism or or science can shed all the light you need. 
If you try and live purely by science, that will not feed you emotionally or spiritually. Or how about the sort of Eastern religions, Buddhism, Enlightenment, Hinduism, Enlightenment, Confucianism, Enlightenment? All sorts of ways of trying to find light. I don't know about you, but my friends seem to go to hedonism more than any of the other isms. And that just means looking for personal pleasure. And lots of them are finding that it's not providing the light they, they actually crave. Somehow, you know, the morning after or the hangover or the bill or the driving to work after the holiday, there's a feeling of, isn't there more to life than this? Maybe it seemed light for a bit, but actually the darkness creeps in all too quickly. Consider these lyrics from this song by the band Passenger I was listening to while I was writing this sermon, and I thought they fit so well as I close. They sung this. I'm not going to sing it. You'll be grateful to hear. If we all light up, we can scare away the dark. We wish our weekends away, spend our weekends in bed, drink ourselves stupid, and work ourselves dead. We wish we were happier, thinner, and fitter. We wish we weren't losers and liars and quitters. We want something more, not just nasty and bitter. We want something real, not just hashtags and Twitter. It's the meaning of life, and it's streamed live on YouTube, but I bet Gangnam Style will still get more views. We're scared of drowning, flying, and shooters, but we're all slowly dying in front of computers. If we all light up, we can scare away the dark. And I wanted to say to my iPad, to the band, I wanted to say, but we can't, can we? We can't light up and scare away the dark. Darkness has been a problem for humanity since time immemorial. We are scared of the dark. And this passage here reminds us that the light is not a philosophy or a new habit or a New Year's resolution or a lifestyle. The light is a person whom we can know. Listen again to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, some of us here can see you because you've shown yourself to us. Thank you. We pray that we'd be honest about what we see in you with our friends this week. Help us to invite people along to things. Father God, some of us can't see you. That frustrates some of us. Pray for those people that you would reveal yourself to them, unblind their eyes. Lord, help all of us to rejoice in the fact that light, that you are personal, that we can know you, and you can take away our fear of the dark. For Jesus' name's sake, amen.